Let's go to Ephesians 6 again tonight. Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. I'll read those four verses and I'll pray for us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, tonight we just humble ourselves before you. Um, We want to be able to think biblically about everything. We want all of our lives and minds to be conformed to the Word of God. We want our minds to be renewed and shaped and governed and held captive by the Scriptures. So to that end tonight, we pray that you would teach us what that means specifically to have ministry to the young people in our church governed by the Word of God. And that these two messages over these last couple weeks would serve in a way as the training wheels for youth ministry that never come off or uh, the walls of a house that never get torn down, but are are guiding lights for us, um, things that we continually look to uh, to shape and inform our thinking about how we can best love you and serve the people in our church, both the parents and their children, for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name we pray these things tonight. Amen. Well, last week began a series of two messages that I hope to conclude tonight on the theme of vision for youth ministry at Heritage Baptist Church. What I'm trying to do is lay out a biblical framework for how to understand the relationship between the church, between parents and youth, that avoids the extremes of eliminating ministry to youth or totally isolating ministry to youth. I chose as our text Ephesians 6, 1-4, because I think that what's going on here is youth ministry. Paul is writing to a church, and he's informing them about how to minister to young people. That's at least part of the thing that he's doing in this, in this text. And it helps us to understand the relationship between the church and the family, and also gives us insight into how ministry within the church ought to be structured. So that's why I've chosen this text. We made three observations last week, and I just want to review those very briefly with you. Number one, a biblical youth ministry views parents, especially fathers, as the primary spiritual teachers in the lives of their children. We do that, we believe that, because the Bible teaches us to believe that in Deuteronomy 6, and also Paul teaches us to believe that right here in Ephesians chapter 6. So that means one of the walls or one of the the things that we must think about as we think about youth ministry is always this question, is this... Whatever we're doing for youth, is this done with a view to seeing parents, especially fathers, as the primary spiritual teachers of their children? So that's a question that we have to consider. Number two, a biblical youth ministry equips parents for the work of parenting. That's what Paul's doing here. He's coming alongside parents, and he's coming alongside children, and he's giving them their various responsibilities, and he's equipping fathers and parents to how to think about what their responsibilities are to their children. He's equipping them for the work of parenting by telling the fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
So that's what we must do as well. We must be asking this question. Well, is this youth ministry or is this event, is this serving to equip parents for the work of parenting? Is it serving to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Number three, a biblical youth ministry strengthens the relationships between parents and their children. That is, we talked about last week that Jesus died in order to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Therefore, we have to ask ourselves the question, is the way that we go about doing ministry actually warring against the purpose for which Jesus died? Or is it seeking to feed that and bring that about practically? And this strengthening is needed now more than ever. Do children need their parents, especially their fathers? Well, I think we can all answer yes. We believe that. But some fascinating research was reported in the Wall Street Journal just last month. I'm not a big Wall Street Journal reader. I don't, I don't even know what a stock is. But, but I, I did come across this article. It is written by a, a lady by the name of Shirley Wang, and she is a, she's a writer for the Wall Street Journal. She's reporting the research of a German biologist who's been working with colleagues to understand the biological impact of, of single parenting. Now, her research has been focused on small rodents. That's a distant relation to the guinea pig, but nonetheless, something that we're learning. They think that if we learn about rodents, it's got to apply to human beings. We're all derived from the same. So, But anyway, here's what she said in her research, which I, I found pretty fascinating. The end result of this was that she was doing a number of things. The research indicated that these little rodents that are raised without their dads exhibit, quote, exhibit both short and long-term changes in nerve cell growth in different regions of the brain. The research also reveals that fatherless pups, that is these rodent pups, exhibit more aggressive and impulsive behavior than pups raised by two parents. Does that sound like anyone you know? Well, similar research at the University of Ottawa in Canada has found a similar pattern in another rodent species, the voles. As a result, it appears that biological evidence now exists that would suggest the fatherless children, and especially boys, are at greater risk of cognitive and emotional instability and eventual delinquency without dad in the home. Now, here's what Al Mohler says as a commentary on this study. He says, of course, we don't need biological studies on rodents to demonstrate and validate what we should already know. Children need fathers in the home. But the epidemic of fatherlessness has brought disaster on a society-wide scale and has brought harm into the lives of millions of young children both boys and girls. So read the reports on biological research with interest and connect the dots from the data to the biblical worldview. This is about far more than young rodents. This is about the lives of children who deserve both mom and dad. So I think his, I think his insights are well taken, and it just shows to underscore that this whole focus on the family and the need to strengthen those relationships is, is needed just as much now as it's ever been. So I want to proceed tonight with three final observations from Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And here is number four. I just review the first three. Here's number four. A biblical youth ministry teaches the Word of God directly to children. A biblical youth ministry teaches the Word of God directly to children. Notice what Paul's doing here in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. All he's doing is quoting scripture and telling children to do that. 
but, but, it, but we need to get that. Because what he's doing is he's feeling complete liberty to speak the Word of God directly into the life of kids. That's not, especially in some of the eliminationist thinking people who, don't, who, would, who would typically say, you know, ministry to youth and all that stuff shouldn't be done. They would say, see, you know, children are to obey their parents. But what, he, what they're maybe missing is what's going on behind the scenes here. Paul is actually stepping in as a pastor of sorts and speaking the Word of God directly into the life of, of the youth, and he has no trouble qualifying that or saying, wait, I shouldn't be doing this. This should be your parents' job. No, he's saying, this is my job, too. I should... Now, to say, you know, you can get the thinking this sometimes, but the only thing you teach youth is not the fifth commandment. You know, it says, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. You don't even know anything else till you do that. Well, that's not, that's not the exhaustive everything that youth need to know about. So that's, that's not what the point of the text is. But what I want you to see is that what Paul is actually doing is taking the Word of God and applying it specifically to youth within the congregation at Ephesus. Now, however, since biblical youth ministry includes, like we saw, both pastoral and parental teaching, Paul also instructs parents. Notice in verse 4, he doesn't stop with the kids and say, okay, kids, here's your responsibility. Now he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. He's been, he already talked about anger in chapter 4. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul instructs parents to teach their children the Word of God, which is essential to their bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I take it from this that it is, an enti- it is entirely appropriate for the church to teach its young people the Word of God directly. It is appropriate, and we need not get bent out of shape, which I don't think any of us are getting bent out of shape about that, but about Sunday school classes and other youth-specific ministry, as long as we keep in mind their ultimate goal, which is the foundation that we laid last week, that is to assist parents in their primary discipleship responsibilities, to strengthen those relationships, and to equip them in their parenting tasks. So Paul is teaching the fifth commandment, He's teaching the Word of God. He's calling them to obey their parents as they seek to bring them up uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this whole idea of bringing up our children to believe a certain way, especially for a pastor to tell children to obey their parents, and the pastor then to tell the fathers and the mothers to bring their children up in a certain way, this is receiving a lot of backlash these days. It's especially receiving a lot of backlash over the pond in the United Kingdom. I came across an article this week from an English newspaper about an atheist campaign that's been going on a little while to challenge the idea that, quote, children can be labeled with their parents' religion. The advertising campaign, which appears on buses and now appears on billboards in U.K. cities like London, Edinburgh, Cardiff, and Belfast, they're showing large, now they have a large billboard that's hanging in the cities that says this. It has a child on the left-hand side, a little young, innocent child sitting there with the words, please don't label me, let me grow up and choose for myself. Now, a popular British writer and atheist, Richard Dawkins, says he's behind this campaign. He says, nobody would seriously describe a tiny child as a Marxist child 
or an anarchist child or a postmodern child. Yet children are routinely labeled with the religion of their parents. We need to encourage people to think carefully before labeling any child too young to know their own opinions, and our advertisements will help you to do that. Now, how should we as Christians respond to this? Well, subliminally, what Dawkins is saying is that it's cruel to subject your children to any sort of training to a particular worldview. We should let them grow up and then let them choose for themselves. However, what Dawkins may fail to realize is that his ad campaigns are actually doing the very thing he opposes. That is, seeking to condition children to one particular worldview, namely atheism. Every parent trains their child to a particular religion. Because everyone has a particular view of life that they are either intentionally or unintentionally passing on to their children. So make no mistake, your children are learning what matters from you. How many times in my classes have I asked questions that are sometimes complex and morally difficult when children default to the worldview of their parents? This is what granddad tells me. This is what I heard from mom. This is what dad told me. So listen, if there is no God, then it makes absolutely perfect sense to let your children grow up and choose among the options. However, because God has spoken, because God has made known the way of life, it is the height of hatred for our children to not teach them the ways of God, since Paul promises them that if they obey their parents in the Lord, that as their fathers bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as they, as they follow that instruction, they're going to be blessed. It's going to go well with them. So it would, be the, it would be the height of hatred to your kids to not want what's best for them. And what's best for them, according to this text, is obedience to the Lord, that, they may, that things may go well with them and that they may enjoy long life on the earth. Therefore, for us as a church and we as parents to teach our children the Word of God is the most loving thing that we can do with them to commend to them the fountain of life contrary to whatever anything on a bus or billboard in the U.K. might tell us. Well, what do we learn from this as, a, as the responsibility of the church and as the responsibility of the home from the, the fact that Paul steps in here and, and teaches the Word of God directly to the youth? Well, this means that the primary responsibility, what is Paul's primary responsibility as a pastor? He doesn't, he doesn't step in to the church at Ephesus and say, okay, we really... We really got to get these kids fired up. Anybody thought about throwing on a big event? No, he doesn't do that. I'm not against events. I'm not against things like that. But the primary responsibility of any pastor is what Paul's doing here. That is to serve first as a Bible teacher and a parent encourager and equipper and not as an event planner. So if we take our cues from the Bible and not the culture, of all the roles that any pastor is called to fulfill, teacher of God's word tops the list. So we are to labor to bring God's word to bear in the lives of youth. And that starts in Sunday school and goes straight up from the youngest age all the way to the oldest. That's the point, to bring God's word to bear. It must be stressed that not every teaching opportunity requires a three-point outline and a pulpit and a class and all that stuff. No, it just means functionally.
pastors think of themselves as teachers of God's Word. So at any point, some teaching can take place in less formal or formal circumstances, and more formal circumstances, but the most important role and responsibility, and I would say this to any pastor for youth or youth pastor in anywhere, I would say, how do you think of yourself fundamentally? And if teacher of God's word didn't come out of their mouths, I would say you're, in an unbi- you're thinking of yourself unbiblically. You should not be thinking that way. Well, I'm an organizer. Well, I'm an administrator. Well, I'm a liaison. Well, I'm whatever. No, you're a Bible teacher. If you're not a Bible teacher, please get out of the ministry. Stop it. Your kids don't need your cool events. The world does it a lot better. They need the Bible. Okay? So that's what I would say first. I would say it a lot more loving than that, though. Sometimes teaching will take place, like I said, in less formal circumstances. But the most important role and responsibility of anyone who ministers to the youth, especially as a pastor, is that in every setting, teaching is what he's uniquely called to do in that moment. So the most effective way that we can serve our teens at HBC in youth ministry is to seize opportunities to teach, discuss, and apply the scriptures. All other events or elements that go into to having a healthy ministry, which doesn't mean we just have 24-hour Bible time, but all those secondary but important elements must provide a context for and assist in that. And if they don't, if they seem to muddy the Word of God or give no place for it, then it just, it's, it's not going to be helpful in the long run. So it has to be secondary to provide a context for and assist in the application of the gospel into the lives of our kids. So that's number four. Number five, a biblical youth ministry calls both parents and children to fulfill their God-given responsibilities. A biblical youth ministry calls both parents and children to fulfill their God-given responsibilities. Now, as I mentioned in my last sermon, youth ministry is, first of all, parent ministry. Parents are equipped for the work of parenting as youth are taught the Word of God in the church. Here, though, Paul has an imperative, a command, for both children and parents. Notice what he says, first of all, in verse 1. Children, what's his command? Obey your parents. So he's calling children to fulfill their God-given responsibility, which is obedience to their parents. Now, who are the children Paul is addressing? I don't think I've answered this question yet. Who are the children? Well, two observations from this verse, verse I think, helps us. Number one, they're old enough to understand what this means. So they're not one. Okay, They're not in the nursery. Okay, And number two, they're still being brought up under the discipline and instruction of the Lord in their homes. So they're still in their home. So I would say, what, 5 to 15, 5 to 20, something like that. So those are the children. What's his command? Obey your parents. What's his command to parents, especially fathers? Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up. Now, notice something. Children can sometimes feel this way. I know I felt this way as a kid. We feel like we're the only ones that have to obey any rules. Like, adults get off scot-free. You know, they don't have to obey any rules. They don't have to follow anybody. We always have to obey. Look, we all got to obey. Everybody is required to obey. So we're stuck. We are finite people made in the image of God, made for dependence on God. We got to obey. We're stuck there, and our sinful nature wars against that. But... Even though children 
feel that way, that's not true. Just look at the context. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. You guys planning on growing up and getting a job? Yes, I hope. We've been talking about that a little bit, right? So you guys are going to get a job? Glad. Good Good to hear that. So you going to obey? Yes, or you're not going to work there very long. So we got to obey. So uh, like I grow up and I get out of my home and I go obey again. Right. You just transfer one obedience to another. But also husbands and wives, we got to obey. Look back at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's an there's a, there's a obligation placed on somebody. We don't get, husbands don't get out of that. Plan on growing up and getting married? Want a happy marriage? Choose to obey. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We don't get out of it. So we need to hear that. We need to hear that. And here's the, here's the glorious thing, is that God obeys God. This is the best of all possible universes. Uh, this is the, the ultimate reason for obedience. Not just that God commands obedience and requires it of us, but that God in Christ actually obeys God the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. I speak only what the Father has asked me to, or told me to speak. I do only what the Father asked me to do. You're never more like Christ than when you respond like that. So this, this is the height of godliness. This is what it means to be an image bearer. This is what it means to be a son of God. It's what it means, it's what it means to, to reflect the glory of God is, is through obedience. So it's in earthly, so it is in earthly parent-child relationships. Children ought to obey their parents in the Lord because the Son of God obeys his Father. And he gives another reason too, right? It's going to go well with you. It will go well with you. You'll live long life on the earth. It's the first commandment with a promise. Now, what does it mean to obey? That's an important question. To obey your parents in the Lord. Well, first of all, not notice that you're you are called to obey both of your parents. Children, obey your parents. So this is an active imperative. It means absolute, unqualified obedience. So we can't put pit one against the other. We can't use one parent to kind of to kind of weasel in what our wishes are in hopes that the other parents will disagree and fight about it, but we'll get what we want. No, the term is used to, de- to denote absolute unqualified obedience. It's, it's the, the same word is used multiple times in Scripture to, the, to determine the way, to guide the way we're to think about our obedience to the Lord himself. So obey here means to obey in the same way that you would obey the Lord Jesus. Does Jesus want unqualified obedience? Does he want, or does he want you to pick and choose? No, he wants unqualified obedience. So we see that it's compared to honoring your father and mother. Obey your parents and Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Honoring carries with it the idea of reverencing, submitting to their wishes, going along with what they want you to do, showing deference to their desires, all those things. But verse 4 also calls parents to a responsibility, which is to bring them up. To bring them up. That, that word is literally can be translated nourish. It's the same word used in 529 if you look up just the previous chapter. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. It's the idea of caring, showing, being gentle and loving and 
carrying them along. So this is a great time to stop and pause and ask ask ourselves a question as parents. Is the way that we are parenting our children in any way similar to the way Christ parents the church and loves the church and cares for the church and nourishes the church and cherishes the church? There should be some overlap there. We shouldn't just see the glory of God reflected in marriage, but we should also see the glory of God reflected in parenting. Number six, and lastly, a biblical youth ministry is done in the Lord. In the Lord. We see that phrase in verse 1 and verse 4. Notice this again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now let me say this. What he's not saying is children, obey Christian parents. If your parents aren't Christians, you don't have to obey them. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying if your parents are in the Lord, if they're in Christ, then you obey them. That's not what Paul's saying. Fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we have in the Lord and of the Lord. Well, what does in the Lord, of the Lord, what is, what is this? What is this talking about? Well, New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien helps me. And this is what he says about these two phrases, in the Lord and of the Lord. The obedience of children to their parents is all of a piece with their submission to Christ. The additional motivating phrase, in the Lord, is virtually synonymous with as to the Lord or as to Christ and indicates that their obedience is part of their Christian discipleship. In other words, what he's saying is, it's saying, children, don't think of your obedience as merely to your parents. That's not the first frame of reference. Of course, they're the ones sitting right in front of you asking you to finish your vegetables or whatever. So, yes, it is obedience to them. But behind them is the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, obey your parents as they seek to lead you in the Lord. Obey them, in the language of verse 5, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, don't just, don't just do it for your parents' sake. I mean, do it for your parents' sake, but don't just do it for your parents' sake. See behind them the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then he addresses children and says, or parents, sorry, continuing with Peter O'Brien's quote now. He says, ultimately the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient to their authority, but that through this godly training and admonition, their children will come to know and obey the Lord himself. In other words, parenting is more than parenting. Obedience is more than obedience. Parents are to bring up their children as if they were raising Jesus Christ. And... Children are to obey their parents as if they're obeying Jesus Christ. That's the way that Paul wants us to think. Now, doesn't that create a radical reorientation of a family? That is huge. That has huge implications because what it says is parenting exists for the glory of God. Obedience exists for the glory of God. Everything exists so that God might be seen and loved and known. So what does it mean then to translate this? Because this sermon, these sermons are not prim- primarily about parenting. They've had implications for parenting, but I, I don't want you to hear them that way necessarily. But what does it mean for youth ministry then to be done in the Lord? 
Well, I think there's some overlap here, but I think looking at the broader context of Ephesians gives us more help. So I, I, I want to I think about three things in the broader context of Ephesians that help us learn what it means to do youth ministry in the Lord or what it means to bring up children, to train them, to help them so that they would set their hope in God. What, is that, what does that look like? And, and here's the first one. Number one, ministry to youth is done in the context of and as a response to the gospel. Remember the first three chapters of this letter. You know, they didn't, when the church at Ephesus was first received this letter from Paul, they didn't stand up and say, Brothers and sisters, we've received a word from the Apostle Paul today. I'm going to read chapter 1. We'll pick up chapter 2 next week. No, they read the whole thing. And they probably were like, is that all? They got anything else to say to us? You know, they read the whole thing. So they, so the, the children who were hearing this, they were hearing the gospel. They heard in the Lord. They heard things that the Lord had done for them. What are some of the things that the Lord has done for people in the book of Ephesians? Number one, he's chosen people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's predestined people for adoption. He's redeemed them and forgiven them. He's sealed them with the Holy Spirit. They've been raised from the spiritual dead. They've been rescued from the power of the devil. They've been saved by grace through faith. They've been brought near through the blood of Christ. They've been joined to his body, the church. They meant to hear all that. That's what they hear. So therefore, all of our ministry must be governed by those realities. All our parenting and attempts at ch- as, as, a, as a church at ministry to our young people must be done as an overflow and as a response to and in awareness of the gospel and its implications. And that has huge implications for us who maybe look back on, maybe our parenting years are past us. And we look back and we said, number one, maybe, I'm I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are older now, and you look back with some regret on where you are, where your children are now, and you think, It was because I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know the Lord, and I ruined it. Or number two, it was I knew my responsibilities, and yet I thought that youth pastor would step in and fill the void. And maybe God used it, maybe God didn't, but it didn't fill it didn't fill the void the way I knew that I should have. And and I just want to encourage you because. I think at this moment it would be real easy for condemnation just to kind of creep into your soul and say, eat the fruit of what you've done. And I want to say this. Number one, your acceptance with God has not changed. Let me read this quote from B.B. Warfield to understand the privilege of what you are in Christ, even though you may feel like you have messed it up. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. Even if all your children are walking with the Lord right at this moment, that does not change your position in Christ and the fact of whether or not you are accepted by God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ doesn't cease with our believing. 
nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or parenting may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. And I say that's, that's, I hope that encourages you. I hope that gives you fresh faith. And that's not the only thing I would say is, is that if your children are still alive, there is hope. The final chapter hasn't been written yet. Let me encourage you with this story that I, I actually stumbled upon reading this afternoon. Um, John Piper and a team of four others, I think, no, he's a part of this four, so three other people went with him last Thursday to Angola Prison in Angola, Louisiana. And if you don't know Angola Prison, let me just let me just share with you some statistics about this. This prison is the largest maximum security prison in America. It is one of the most famous prisons in the whole world. It has only murderers, rapists, armed robbers, and habitual felons. The average sentence is 88 years with 3,200 people in one place serving life sentences. 90% of the inmates will die there. This is a place of hopelessness. But there is a warden there. His, the warden's name is Burl Kane. And he was gracious enough to allow Piper in and some of his other people that went with him to preach to this work. But this the work, the work that Piper did by preaching in this prison is God's been doing some great things here. I just want to share with this, share you, share with you this, just for your encouragement. If Angola like is this way now, then I want you to take encouragement. I mean, any of your children raped anyone recently, or murdered anyone, or serving a life sentence? If God can change these people, God can change anybody, and He has changed these people. Listen to this. These are Piper's words. For those who know prison culture from the inside, this place is astonishing. On a campus of 18,000 acres, which is mainly farmland, the prisoners raise virtually all their food and eat three meals for a total cost of $1.45 each. The fish and crawdads, Jim Golly, that we ate were from the farm. This is a local extension. There is a local extension of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in the prison, and about 140 prisoners are enrolled. There are six churches in the prison, and they train their own pastors. They send trained missionaries to other prisons to plant churches. They do this without using any tax money. But oh, the money and the lives it saves. Violence in the prison is rare. Courtesy and respect is pronounced. The ministry team of women who were visiting at the same time we were said they were treated with more respect from the prisoners here than in many places on the outside. Public profanity is not allowed. The 42-inch church bell hangs high over the chapel in a prisoner-built tower. They rescued the bell from storage where it had been put after falling and killing a man. Some of the prisoners say the bell killed a man. And we killed a man, but now the bell and we serve the Lord Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? And so take heart. Take heart that God is saving among the most unlikely. And the more unlikely that you are to save, the more that God delights to save. So, so be encouraged. Also, so all of our ministry, all of our thinking about ministry must be done as a response to the gospel in light of the gospel. And secondly, ministry to youth is done in radical dependence 
on the Holy Spirit. Radical dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, it could be said that Ephesians 5.18 is the one command that governs this entire section of Ephesians. From 5, say, 18, all the way down to the end of the chapter, and even into chapter 6. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And we could say that all the rest that flows from this is a result of being filled with the Spirit. That is verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Verse 20, giving thanks. Verse 21, submitting to one another. And the whole marriage relationship, all that ability to submit and lead like Christ is rooted in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it would even flow in to children and their obedience to their parents and fathers and their bringing up their children. All of that is done in dependence on the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture this kind of life. We can't do this kind of life in our own power. This all requires radical dependence on the Spirit. It requires everything that our pastor gave to us this morning. It requires the power of Almighty God infusing our hearts. So, that's the way we need to think about all of ministry to the youth. This is why this sermon has been very light on specifics. Because the the burden was to cast a vision, to lay out things, because the Lord only knows what specific concrete ways this is going to get walked out. But the point is, is that none of those specific concrete ways in which it's getting walked out can do anything on their own. It has to be the Holy Spirit of God working in and through those to accomplish good. And thirdly, ministry to youth is done with an awareness that we are at war. What does Paul follow this instruction to children and parents and slaves with? Verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are in a war. Those bus signs and those billboards illustrate it. That's one manifestation that we're in a war. Parenting is war. Obedience is war. It ought not to surprise you that a treatment on instructions for marriage and parenting are followed by a discourse on the need to put on the whole armor of God. So we have to recognize this. And to the degree that we don't recognize this, we'll sentimentalize everything and we'll get bent out of shape about things that aren't happening and that should be happening when we don't keep these things central. Number one, we do this as a response to the gospel. Why do I say that? Because we need the gospel ourselves and kids need to see the gospel reflected in us. That's why I say to parents, who who are feeling discouraged in the midst. Maybe you're in the midst of parenting right now, and you're just discouraged. You're saying, my kids are seeing my sin. My kids are seeing their fall. One of the scariest things that you can ever see is your sin reproducing your child. I understand all that. I sympathize, even though he's not old enough quite yet. But I'm seeing my traits, you know, come out. But you can say, you need to rejoice in that. Because what your kids need to see is not perfection. They don't need to see, oh, my family's got it all together. My parents don't ever struggle. My parents just keep it, 
keep it together. You know, they never, they never struggle with me or anything like that. They never confess their sin or, or have to apologize. And look, that's terrible. That's breeding Pharisees. That's all that's doing. Or breeding external moral kids. They need to be able to see that you're, you're relying on Christ too. That gives them hope. So that's the main thing. That's the main thing is that we always have to think about parenting and ministry. And that has huge implications for everything. For the way we interact as a family. For the way that we interact as a church. All that. But we need to see the gospel reflected in our relationships. And I know that has been underscored. But we also need to be, it needs to be done in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it needs to be done with an awareness of spiritual warfare. So let me understand. Let me under, let me just summarize very very briefly all that I've tried to say in these last couple messages, and then I'll pray that the Lord would make it happen. We recognize that parents are the primary spiritual leaders in the lives of their children, and therefore, parents must embrace this privilege and calling, and pastors must support this calling by equipping the saints for the work of parenting and strengthening the relationship between parents and children. But we also recognize that the church has a unique function in this enterprise as well. That is teaching the Word of God directly to children, calling both parents and children to obedience to their various responsibilities, and seeking to bring glory to God through a ministry that is shaped by the gospel, independent upon the Holy Spirit, (coughs) with an awareness of the war that we're in. So that the next generation might set their hope in God. Let's pray. Father, we want the things that I've said tonight that are biblical, that are rooted in your design for the church and your design for the family. We want those things to become the fabric of this church. I want these things to become the fabric of the church of Jesus Christ around the world. We want... These things that we've talked about are not just for Western culture. They're things that transcend cultures, that all churches need to live in light of and embrace. And we pray that you would give grace and increasing health to your churches so that they may be the visible manifestations of the glory of God that you have intended them to be. And we pray for a lot of grace for us as parents and, and, and as, a, as a family of God here that you will that you will give us grace to always live um, live faithful to you, faithful to our covenant, covenant responsibilities to, to our brothers and sisters, faithful to um, raise our children, love our children, and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, all with an awareness of our redemption, our fresh, ongoing forgiveness from you as we confess our sins, all aware that we have been accepted in the Beloved, that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. You have made it all possible through Christ. So may none of us leave disheartened tonight. May we, live, may we leave with great encouragement and hope, knowing that you are the God who sets the prisoners free. In Jesus' name, amen.